You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 58, Modern Stoicism and Online Communities with Donald Robertson. We talk about the appeal of Stoic philosophy in modern times, the benefits of online communities, challenges associated with online discussion and moderation, dealing with insults, handling adversity, and modern Stoic resources, including online training courses and larger events. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, or you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Today's special guest, Donald Robertson, is a writer and trainer with over 20 years experience. He's a specialist in teaching evidence-based psychological skills and known as an expert on the relationship between modern cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. He was born in Scotland and worked as a psychotherapist for 20 years in London, where he ran a training school for therapists before moving to Canada to focus on his writing and developing new online training courses. He is an experienced public speaker. His therapy practice specialized for many years in helping clients with social anxiety and self-confidence issues. His work and that of his colleagues has been featured in the media of different countries, including a recent article on the front cover of the Toronto Global Mail. Let's move on to today's discussion. All right. Thank you for joining me today for conversation. Thanks for inviting me, Justin. It's my pleasure to be here speaking to you. Great. Can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself in addition to what you've sent me? Sure, yeah. I am a writer and a trainer and a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist. I'm from Scotland originally. I lived and worked in London and England for many years and then I immigrated to Canada five years ago and that's where I live now and uh, I've been involved with Stoicism for a long time now, about 20 years or something I think. first became interested in Stoicism really as a kind of personal thing and then I started writing books about it, teaching stuff about it in workshops and courses and just finished my sixth book on philosophy and psychotherapy and I'm one of the original members of an organization called Modern Stoicism which is a a non-profit interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary I should say, organization that promotes stoicism and and basically educates people about stoicism and relevance to to modern living and I, I do a lot of work developing online training courses about philosophy, particularly stoicism. I've just finished developing one on Socrates. And one thing that you're doing, what we're here to talk about today, is moderating the Stoic Philosophy Facebook group. Now there are more than 40,300 members. There are too many, we should get rid of some of them. (laughs) We had 40,000 recently. And well, you know, it's not even really that old. It's five years old. It seemed natural to start a group about stoicism. I write a lot. I write a lot of material for training courses. I write books and articles. And I find that as a kind of byproduct of that, there are pieces of writing that are surplus or there are ideas that I maybe want to research or develop into articles. So I have a blog and I put a lot of stuff out on that. And I thought it would be good to have a group online about stoicism where I could share some of the stuff I'm writing in my blog and really that was the uh, thing that made me set it up originally and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew and there wasn't much of a plan behind it but now it's a pretty big group. Great and what do you think accounts for the growth and popularity of the group? Groups that are quite active attract a lot of people. The flip side of that, which I know we're going to come to in a moment, is that Mm -hmm. as as a group gets bigger, you you know, there are problems that go with that. So if you can strike a balance between encouraging growth in a group and managing to prevent people from spoiling it, basically, then I I think that's I think that's the secret. You've got you've got to be able to to moderate it well. You've got to adapt the way that you moderate it over time, and you you need to be 
constantly kind of seeding the discussions with relevant material as well. And part of my work, I'm always getting sent articles and finding out bits of information or writing things myself. So I'm I'm constantly dropping material into it. But I find that I don't have to really do that much anymore because people send so much. (laughs) There are loads of people writing blogs and doing podcasts and stuff about stoicism now. So there's kind of no shortage of content for it. Right. And it's quite a modern renaissance in general, considering stoicism, all kinds of people are writing about it, as you say. I can remember things were very different when I first became interested in it. And uh, the you know the whole thing has changed. And you know there are probably a number of different reasons for that. But partly just the internet itself has brought people together into, you know, in other subjects, there are groups. But with stoicism, there's genuinely, I think, kind of a sense of a, an emerging online community. And people I notice call it a community. They think of it as something more than just a kind of a group. There's a sense of people having something in common and having some shared values and interests. And, you know, these are people all over the world that probably wouldn't have met anyone to talk to about their interest in stoicism before. But the internet allows them to... Uh, form conversations and make contact with other people and you know there always were loads of people that were interested in stoicism but they they just didn't seem to be in contact with each other until the internet made that possible do you think there are certain characteristics or behavioral patterns for people who are interested in stoicism one of the things that modern stoicism does is collect huge amounts of of data on participants in the two online courses that we run, Stoic Week and Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training. You know, so just to give an indication of that, the scale of it, last year, um, 7,000 people took part just in Stoic Week, just that year. And so they all fill out uh, online questionnaires. There are several of them. And Tim LeBon, my colleague, uh, another member of the team, analyzes that and publishes reports on it. So we have a lot, a lot of detailed demographic information. And we have a scale that we developed called SABS, or the Stoic Attitudes and Behaviors Scale. Ah. We actually use that to measure people's attitudes that, that may be relevant to Stoicism. And there's so much information that we've collected over the years about that. You know, often there, there are more men than women who are interested in, in Stoicism. But I don't actually think that's something intrinsically about the philosophy because, you know, from my understanding, there are generally more men interested in philosophy as a whole than women. So the the kind of gender disparity I feel might just be representative of the the field of philosophy more broadly rather than uh, being an issue about stoicism. One of the things we've kind of got to think about when we're looking at the the sort of people, is it something about stoicism that's attracting people with these demographic characteristics or personality traits, or is it just that these are the kind of people that are interested in philosophy or personal development in general? Uh, It's actually kind of quite a complex question. The thing I notice about them is that they divide into groups as well that have started to emerge over time. And so there are people that are into stoicism who, like you and I, are kind of involved in the mental health field, psychotherapists, and quite early on, there were a bunch of psychotherapists involved. Tim is another one. He does CBT in, in the UK and the NHS. And then there are the classicists, and then there are the philosophers. But there are also people who are into sports coaching. There are people in the military that are into stoicism, people that work in prisons, people that uh, work as educators, that work in schools that are into stoicism. There are people that are deeply into religion that are into stoicism. And then there's kind of some overlap between some of these groups as well, but there are clearly these subcultures or subgroups within the stoicism community. Something that I've noticed more recently over the past year or so, there are lots of little Facebook groups appearing <laughs> yes. that are kind of more specific. So right, there's right. one for stoic parents, right? Yep. There's one for Stoic Buddhists, there's one for Stoic Christians, there's one for Stoics and Social Justice, there's one. Uh-huh. So that, that's another indication of Stoicism is big enough that it actually has these kind of little subcultures or subgroups within it. Right, so this can provide a lot of benefits for people online who are interested in the philosophy to hear all sorts of different perspectives, to meet with others, to exchange ideas, right? I see these as a lot of benefits that the Stoic Philosophy Facebook page can provide. Yeah, in terms of the, what people get from it, I don't know if, if in some way they, they maybe there's some 
benefit to just feeling that they're part of something bigger and that there's a community in there. You know, they, they feel a connection with some people that have shared values. It's, it's maybe some kind of validation that people get from that. But also, you know, people learn a lot just from chatting to each other casually and about the subject and they'll learn about the books that other people are reading and they'll learn about, you know, some of the stuff that modern stoicism do. They'll hear about Stoic Week and Stoicon and stuff. But often, very much, people have questions about theory and practice of stoicism and, you know, the, the community increasingly are, are, I think, getting, I've watched them all the time get better and better at answering each other's questions. You know, so it used to be uh, there was less of that. And now people are kind of better informed over time. And then also, uh, one of the things that happens is, you know, we have people in that group, I guess, who have been in it as long as I have. You know, I guess I was the first member of the group. I said it up. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I, there must have been the first hundred or thousand people that joined that group. But probably some of them are still in it. So the people that have been in it for a while and some of the group members have heard a lot of the questions before and they've heard a lot of the problems that people have encountered before and so right. you, you start to see patterns emerging in the discussions what first might have kind of had people scratching their heads about now they go oh yeah i know the answer to that question <laughs> i know, I know <laughs> a resource that i can point you towards right, and that, right. that, that evolves organically if you as it were over time Right. And that's a good thing. New people come in and those resources are already there. I see some posts yeah. and say like, oh, how do you deal with this? Oh, well, here's a podcast on this. Or, oh, here's a YouTube video on this. Or yeah. go to this website. Oh, that's already addressed here. That, that's and great. I, I suppose part of it is uh, people like yourself who are doing podcasts or writing blogs will see the recurring questions. And then that kind of shapes the, the content that they're creating. Right. Yep. You know, so if people keep asking the same question five years later, you know, there's maybe a bunch of blog articles and podcasts that are about that because people have learned that it's a common question. It's a very healthy kind of organic process in that respect. Right. It's easy to find some topics just browsing through the group. And I have some listeners yeah. who will support the podcast. They send in questions and I make episodes for that. And yes, there are a lot of these common concerns. And I think loneliness especially is one. I've made a podcast episode on that. And perhaps the community can offer that. And they look around the world and see others as being so unstoic or, oh, I don't really get along with this person as well because, oh, they don't have the same ideas or similar ideas that I have. They're just operating very differently than I am. Maybe getting offended so easily easily engaging in road rage, just being too materialistic, not having a frugal lifestyle, right? I... The groups evolved over time. And I think it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. You can see people also, uh, of course, you know, the, the odd thing, the unusual thing about this group is that stoicism is one of those things that has teachings about about other people and the way that we interact with them mm -hmm. and you know you see over time that people kind of become better applying stoicism to to the way that they deal with challenges in the group you know i i really believe it can make a big difference to the the atmosphere in the group if you raise people's awareness of that you know you kind of create meta discussions about you know the way the discussion is going in the group and what stoicism might teach us about that so i haven't done as much of that as i would have liked i've done a little bit over over time and it's very interesting. It really does change the atmosphere in the group, bringing up the subject of, hey, you know, what does stoicism tell us about how we deal with conflict in a Facebook group? I'd like to see more of that over time, actually. That's one of the things I'd like to see more podcasts, blog articles and resources on online about, you know, because I, I again, in a kind of circular manner, I think uh, the more we talk about that, the more resources we de develop, the more it will educate people and the more that will change the group dynamic in a, in a healthy direction. I think stoicism itself, as it were, has the potential to help people form more healthy communities. It should. That, that's just part of the rationale for stoicism in a way. You know, it should have values built into it that would contribute to forming a, a healthy society. So we should be able to emulate to some extent in an online community. Right. I see stoicism is calling us to contribute to a common good, to be respectful of others, to have a conversation which has a goal of informing and not looking at just trying to provoke people or winning an argument per se, right? It's just getting those ideas out there and connecting with others for a beneficial end. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've also touched on 
the way that people approach stoicism from different perspectives and actually you know the, the one of the the sources of conflict or one of the areas where improvements can be made is that there are a lot of people who are interested in stoicism who are really who don't view it that way who, who see it very much as a quite an individualistic form of self-help and they, they don't really think of it much in terms of the the interpersonal dimension or the social dimension mm. um, but but actually that features very very prominently in the stoic literature if you pick up the meditations of marcus aurelius which almost everyone interested in stoicism has read on virtually right. every page he talks about <laughs> justice cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. you know uh, the brotherhood of man or, or natural affection or, or one of these kind of interpersonal moral ethical concepts so it's kind of surprising that people manage to read that entire book and that, that that part of it just kind of goes over their head, as it were. Like, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, yeah there's a whole social dimension to it. You know, that's, that's the bit he's most interested in, actually. Epictetus doesn't say quite as much about it, Marcus, you know, unsurprisingly, because of his, his role in life. He's particularly interested in that. Even to tell someone that, and then maybe they go and read the meditations again and think about it a little bit differently, and then maybe they come back to the Facebook group and they, they interact with other people a little bit. Right, and even Marcus Aurelius, the then emperor, reminded himself that he'll deal with difficult people throughout the day, right? And how can we make the best of that? How can yeah. we get through those situations? Meditations 2.1 and is one of the most widely quoted passages from <laughs> the book and dozens of other passages in the book that say very similar things. You know, he repeats himself over and over again throughout the whole book. That particular passage is unique, but it, it is prominent. It's also the first passage in the book proper, as it were, the first book of the Meditations, book one. It's kind of like a preface. It's different from the rest. Right. You know, people believe that it was actually probably written last and then put at the front, but the Meditations perhaps originally began with book two, which goes straight into this thing about when you wake up in the morning, prepare to deal with treacherous, hypocritical, you know, unpleasant mm-hmm. people in life. What he kicks off with. And, you know, he was a guy that had to deal with that a lot. His entire adult life revolved around diplomacy. Right. So negotiating with others, trying to get to some common resolutions, and maybe some people wouldn't come to the table with a compromising attitude. And I I think with the Stoic Facebook group that there's a lot of challenge in dealing with other people and moderating the group. What might some of those challenges be? I probably actually spend far less time dealing with the group, moderating it than, than people tend to assume. I'm usually working in Stoicism, and then I'll just kind of like post stuff to the group. I'll check in occasionally. It doesn't actually take that long to do the kind of technical side of moderation. When the group's going smoothly, I, I may even just spend a couple of minutes a day looking at it. Occasionally, you, what sort of issues arise are, you know, obviously dealing with troublesome posts and trolling. And I guess the other thing is that I would say maybe half the time, perhaps less than that, maybe a quarter of the time, half the time, the people that are kind of perceived as trolling are not really doing it intentionally. That which leads me to another point that's probably relevant to both of us coming at, at things from a mental health background. There, mm-hmm. there are in a group that size, there are many people in the group with mental health problems, inevitably, because right. there are a significant proportion of, of the, the population as a whole who have mental health problems. Sure. And, you know, so any large group, you can have a bunch of people who are, you know, suffering from clinical depression or anxiety disorders or personality disorders or kind of range, really, of mental health problems and are represented by people in a a big community like that. And there's no kind of screening process, as it were, to, to stop people joining the group. Right. So in some cases, that affects the way that people interact with others. And I noticed over the years, you know, so I, I forget that sometimes. And I think the other group members tend to forget it. To you know, one of the features of online discussions is that you're just talking to a stranger on the internet. And often people kind of forget diversity, as it were. They forget how different other people are from them. And I notice often people act as if everyone's just like them or just like their mates down the pub. Mm-hmm. And they can't forget that the people they're talking to, different ages, different genders, different cultures, you know, maybe have very different personalities, different issues going on in their life. That's part of what it means to be respectful towards other people in a group is having some kind of sensitivity or appreciation of that. There are people in the group over the years that have reminded me of that by telling me they were having problems 
and that was why they made comments that they had you know because they were suffering from uh, issues related to, to mental health and then they maybe got in touch with me as moderator and said you know this is what's go this is what's actually going on I thought right. I better I thought I better explain myself oh good and, and then there are people I'm conscious of who have mental health issues that affect the way that they interact with others you know they're trying to deal with that and there are other people who get very angry with them and complain about them and I can see from the way that they react to them that they that they I can't tell them that because it's confidential but the person who's getting angry with them and just sees them as a kind of nasty troll can't imagine that maybe it's unintentional and maybe that person has issues going on in their life psychologically and emotionally that are affecting the, the things that they write and the way that they interact with others. Right. So we can work to be more charitable and think of different perspectives when posts and not just writing them off or consider them to be trolls then. Yeah, we should pause and ask ourselves, you know, why, why might this person be reacting in this way? Are we just responding to our kind of initial impression? You know, are we thinking about uh, what the possibilities are here? Try to think about things a little bit more flexibly. It is difficult sometimes for people to kind of make that mental leap and, and imagine, you know, I do find there's a tendency for people online just to kind of assume that they're t speaking, uh, speaking to themselves. I often remind people, look, imagine you just walked into a room and there's an audience of 40,000 people in front of you. And some of them are 13 years old, all, all different countries and all different religions around the world. Uh, and just imagine for a minute that that's who you're actually talking to. Would you say the same stuff that you're set posting in the group? You know, do you think some of it might not be appropriate for a mixed audience? Right. You know, would you talk to an old lady like that? You know, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, there's a kind of, people, there's a forgetfulness of the diversity of the, the people that you're talking to. Would you talk to your own grandma like that? How do you know she's not a member of the group? And reading <laughs> you know, but I, I'm kind of more aware as the admin because I, I interact with group members more and, you know, a lot of them send me private messages and stuff. So I kind of develop a little bit more of a sense for the, the range of people that are in the group, but particularly new members, I think, are kind of not aware of that. So one of the things people often do is that, you know, sometimes they'll, if they're kind of getting angry, they'll use strong language. And over time, I realized that I had to basically prohibit that right. because I was kind of forgetting that we have kids in the group, the, I think the youngest age you can open a Facebook account is 13. Um, but we certainly have 15-year-olds in the group. Well, do we not allow 15-year-olds who are interested in Stoicism to join the group? From the conferences and from Stoic Week, I know there are school teachers at high school who teach their classes about Stoicism. And, mm. and uh, there was one who brought a, a whole group of students to the, the conference. That's happened a couple oh, that's of times. that's great. Yeah, it's awesome, right? But uh, then people kind of forget that online. And but as moderator, I'm a little bit more aware, kind of more conscious of that, you know, and that we have to maybe take account of that. Not be like overly protective, but again, if we, if it was a if we were having a meeting of you know people in the physical world in the real world, uh, it would seem odd for someone to walk into the middle of a room with a bunch of 15 year old school kids and their teachers and start you know yelling profanities at them. So that's good. In many ways, we can treat the discussions we have online similar to those we would have in real life. And if it's not so appropriate in real life, then maybe consider not being so appropriate for online. I try to apply and encourage people to think about what they're doing more realistically, you know, to, to, to use their imagine, imagination more to really kind of empathize with the group and to try to do, develop a more realistic, more accurate perception of what it is that they're actually doing. Right. And I think one strength of the group is that initial posts are subject to approval before they're posted to the group. What led to that decision? Well, my experience is that that's, that's pretty much the norm in large groups. And you know, that, very simply, we have about a thousand posts a month. Last time I checked, anyway, uh, roughly off the top of my head, I think probably about 20% maybe of those are just spam. And sometimes it's higher. There are some days I'll check the queue and everything's spam. And then, you know, so just to prevent a lot of spam coming through and ruining the group, we have to have moderation in the posts. But also, you know, occasionally, it doesn't happen that often, but occasionally people just post stuff that's like, or bots will post stuff that's just like really obviously intended to be offensive um, inappropriate to the group so that needs to be 
caught before it goes through to the group. Not again, particularly to shelter people. But I wouldn't want you know I wouldn't want to show that to 13, 14, 15 year olds necessarily. But just to kind of preserve the, the group so that it functions properly. Because the other thing I find when we discuss the way that the group works in moder and moderation and so on, one of the things that the admin can see is the attrition rate, the the number of people that leave the group. Right. And the number of people that leave the group is a lot higher than the number of people that complain about things. So, you know, that's a kind of a measure that I can see that the group members aren't aware of. Although sometimes I'll point it out to them. So there might be somebody who's kind of like posting a lot of stuff and it's kind of aggravating the other group members and they'll say, well, why don't see what the problem is? But as the admin, I can see a lot of people are leaving the group. Right. And you won't always get the exit surveys where they're describing why they left, as you mentioned. Yeah, and then Facebook is not really a feature that allows you to do that. But you can kind of see what's causing it if there's something that's been happening in the group and then suddenly there's a spike and they're leaving. And maybe there are a couple of them that are getting in touch and saying stuff to the admin about it. You know, moderating, it's not so much kind of people sometimes see it as kind of censorship or it's motivated by values and so on. But often it's actually more often a, a kind of a practical thing. You know, if you allow someone to carry on doing what they're doing, then the group is going to shrink. Because like, they're basically, you know, they're, they're frightening people off from the group or they're, they're annoying people. So you can't allow that to continue if you want the, the group to sustain itself. And I think it would be the same. I've seen groups that get quite big and aren't moderated. And then usually they just kind of implode after a while because they mm -hmm. fill up with trolls and spam. And, you know, and then everyone just kind of leaves the group or, or people remain members of it but they don't access they're not active members anymore so you you know i've seen over the years forums that that kind of happens to they reach a point where they're, they're spoiled basically and people don't find them useful anymore right so that's really one of the reasons that you you kind of have to hold the posts and check them but everything is allowed through to the group except spam stuff that's just obviously off topic mm -hmm. and uh, stuff that's clearly offensive, but other than that, there isn't any kind of I don't exercise any kind of uh, censorship or selectivity. You know, uh, anything that's about stoicism and doesn't contain lots of swearing or whatever is basically allowed through. Very good. And you're listening to the Stoic Solutions podcast. I'm here talking with Donald Robertson today about the Stoic Philosophy Facebook page. It was weeks ago that you revised rules for posting. You took away members' privileges for posting and created some new rules or clarifications for the group. What led to that decision? Periodically, we, we get people that are kind of trolling or being a nuisance and taking up the admin's time, as it were. Mm. And there was a day when I was working quite busily towards a deadline and I realized I wasn't getting anything done because I spent most of the day dealing with people who were kind of bombarding me with private messages or kind of doing stuff in the groups that I had to deal with or dealing with complaints about them by other group members. So there were four or five people on, in one day who were kind of kicking off and some of them kind of playing off each other a bit. And right. people complaining about the stuff. When it happens, it tends to, for some reason, often when you have trolls or people causing problems in a group, it, it's sometimes just quiet for a long time. And then suddenly it all kind of erupts, like you know, it's a full moon or something. Probably the day when things have been most hectic. And I realized, okay, well, the group's pretty big now. And so when this happens, it's kind of becoming too time consuming. I think well, I need to just pause the posts for the time being. Uh, let things calm down a bit, give me time to go away and think about how I can manage the situation. And I thought it's time to maybe revise the ground rules. I discussed it with the other group members. I also had quite a bit of discussion with other people in private who moderate other groups. But what I did in the end was really just to change the ground rules a little bit and clarify them. Um, I talked to the other group members about that. And actually the main thing I did was, was move them into a, a blog post on my website so that I could post a URL to that. Right. And that made, a, that made quite a big difference because it was easier to highlight it and to send it to people who were kind of breaking the ground rules or 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, often you know maybe on the verge of breaking them or something. So it actually just became a little bit easier to manage the information that way. And since then, things have been a lot better. Actually, normally I find the groups fairly good, and then like periodically there'll be things that kind of erupt. And you know, often it's just one person or two people playing off each other. I don't think they realise how much they're dominating the group. But you know, again, as admin, I'll look at the information that I have, the analytics, and you know, someone maybe posted 100 comments or whatever in the past 24 hours, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, all, that's often an indication that something's <laughs> going on, right? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> the tricky thing as moderator is when somebody posts something where it's a kind of grey area, and actually the, the difficulty is that with trolls, with people that are genuinely trolling, often but not always, they'll kind of deliberately do stuff that's not enough to get them banned from the group, <laughs> but kind of almost. And and then if you, as the admin, you say, hey, hang on a minute, you know, they'll kind of plead ignorance and then they'll do it again the next day and then they'll do it again and then they'll do it again. They'll keep doing it as long as you let them. Sometimes you can kind of, as admin, you can say, hey, you know, here's the ground rules, behave yourself. And with some of them, that's enough to trigger them, and then they'll just go nuts and you know start swearing at you, and then you can say, "Okay, you're definitely banned." <laughs> oh, you made it easy. <laughs> <laughs> there you, you go. Know, I'll just I'll just stick my head above the parapet as ad, as admin and let you swear at me. <laughs> <laughs> Easy you know, decision you, now. You're, you're on the verge of doing that with the rest of the group anyway, and now you've done it. But the, yeah, telling people what the ground rules are is often enough just to kind of trigger them. Oh, uh-huh. Otherwise, it can go on for a long time. And if you you know you try to address it, they'll say you know oh, I wasn't trolling, I didn't mean. But another indicator is the number of other group members that complain about somebody. If someone's kind of persistently posting snarky comments and stuff. So the being able to, I've tried a couple of other strategies. One is that if there's something that's kind of ambiguous, I'll say, I'll give you 24 hours to rephrase that or remove it because maybe you didn't realize that it was offensive or, you know, maybe it wasn't entirely intentional. You know, maybe, you know, they just kind of, things got a bit heated or something. And then you usually one or two responses to that. Either they'll say, oh, listen, I'm really sorry, man. By the way, the number of people that have told me I was high or I was drunk, <laughs> I'm sorry. And then I'll say, you know, not a biggie, just fix it, you know, take it down, yeah. or like reword it or whatever, that's okay. Either they'll do that or they'll tell you to go and take a running jump and bombard you with abusive messages as admin. And then you can say, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> What they don't realize as well, one of the funny things about trolls is that they do tend to kind of go for the group admins, but what they kind of don't realize is, especially if you've been an admin of a group for a long time, you've kind of heard everything like that before. And Mm -hmm. so the stuff they say to me doesn't bother me anymore because other people have said far worse stuff to me in the past. Why about the group or whatever? So like they they kind of feel like they're getting to you, but if you're used to it as an admin, it's just you know they just all kind of blend into one in a way, and it doesn't really you know it seems kind of familiar and boring. But they do they invariably people in troll groups they always say this thing about they kind of assume that everybody's getting upset with them, and they do talk about that a lot. You know, which is interesting because often they, you can watch them do it with other people as well. They'll kind of assume that they've upset somebody, but in fact, it's not at all obvious that they have. You know, it's clear that that's kind of what they're fishing for, and there's a desire on their part to to provoke a reaction from the other person and to assume that they have succeeded in provoking a reaction. Right. Um, it's a, it's an insight from stoicism anyway to not be so deterred by insults or take offense to things and say, well, this doesn't mean so much to me. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. I'm confident with myself. And that's really what matters. Yeah, it's, a pretty, it's an integral part of stoicism. So you might think, well, it's surprising that you would have people trolling and arguing and stuff in a group that's about stoicism. <laughs> but, you know, you do because the ancient stoics recognize themselves that there are several reasons why we'd expect that to happen. And one of them is that a lot of the people in the group aren't Stoics. They're Epicureans, or they're, you know, Platonists, or, you know, they're Buddhists, or whatever. You know, they just happen to be vaguely interested in it. You know, so not everybody in the group is even trying to be a Stoic. 
there, you know, there are there are lots of other people in the group as well. But even among the people who are trying to be Stoics, um, I'm going to hazard the guess that none of them are perfect sages that uh, right. have completely mastered their passions. The ancient Stoics kind of took that for granted. It was an integral feature of uh, of Stoicism that people acknowledged their fallibility. They said the the uh, the perfect sage is as rare as the Ethiopian phoenix, which is <laughs> born every five hundred years. According to mythology, the chances of there being one in the Facebook group is pretty slim. So we, you know, we're all fallible, and we're supposed to acknowledge our fallibility as Stoics, and that means that we have we, we should treat other people on the assumption that they are not perfect sages and that they do have emotions, you know, and it, it's not helpful or productive to treat them as if they didn't. Epictetus, even his pretty kind of hard-nosed Stoic, realized that. Uh, you can't just go around treating people as if they uh, they didn't have feelings. But there's another aspect of stoicism anyway, which is the recognition that we have involuntary emotional responses to things that they say over and over again, that even the sage isn't like a stone. Um, he doesn't have a heart of iron, they say. It's how they like mm-hmm. to articulate it. So they have propathei, or uh, what the stoics call proto-passions, or first movements, which today we might call just kind of reflexive or automatic right. instincts, right. emotional instincts, like automatic thoughts, uh, involuntary emotional reactions, and then there's the more strategic cognitive processes that are more under voluntary control. And you know, the Stoics, there, there are a number of passages in the Stoic literature where they spell that out really explicitly. There's a very famous fragment from Epictetus that comes from a, a Roman writer called Aulus Gellius. And uh, it tells a very famous story about uh, a Stoic who's... Gellius tells a story about a famous Stoic teacher who was on a ship with him and they were caught in a storm. And frustratingly, he he doesn't tell us the name of the teacher. (laughs) It couldn't have been that many of them. Lost the time, I suppose. There weren't that many of them around at that time, so it's kind of annoying that he doesn't name them. It could be someone we know. It could be it could be Marcus Aurelius' teacher, Apollonius of Chalcedon. But this guy was on a boat and they were caught in a storm and everybody was freaking out, to use the technical term. They all thought they were going to drown and they were going to die. And the, the Stoic was shaking and turned white. And then when they got into harbour, they survived. And Olus Gellius said to this guy, what's the score? I thought you were meant to be a Stoic. And the guy was quite polite and understanding with him. And he took out a bag and he showed him one of the books of Epictetus's discourses, which happens to be one of the, f- the four books that are missing today. Like, curiously, so he, we have this passage. He read him a bit from one of the missing books of Epictetus. And he and Epictetus says, look, we have involuntary emotional reactions. And what the Stoic sage does is he accepts those feelings. Like if you're caught in a storm, you'd feel nauseous, you'd feel anxiety. Um, But the difference is that the Stoic guy, although he was white and he was shaking like everyone else, everyone else was kind of freaking out and complaining and lamenting the situation. And he was just silent. He wasn't making it worse for himself. He wasn't compounding the problem by worrying or ruminating about it. And as soon as they got uh, ashore, he kind of regained his composure and went back to normal and he said well that's what stoicism was about it's not being it's not about being completely unemotional it's just it's about not adding another layer to our feelings by ruminating about them adding value judgments to them or making them worse and that to do that it would actually require accepting the propathei uh, the automatic feelings with indifference and not judging them not judging them to be bad or shameful or negative, which is an important part of modern cognitive therapy, but it's a subtlety that I think many people miss about classical stoicism. So when people say, well, you're a stoicism group, how come people get triggered or get upset in this group? Uh, Epictetus would have said, well, actually, I can give you a theoretical explanation for why stoics would assume that to be the case. Right, and we could be grateful even for the awareness that we're feeling those 
emotions, we're thinking those thoughts, and we can be mindful of the progress that we make as well as, well, we're not going to completely shut down or that we're going to start calling others nasty names, but that we can respond better in time and with practice. You know, I can see there are people on the group that talk about the progress that they make over time and, and learning to deal with uh, with people on the internet. And in a way, I mean, one of the things that the Stoics teach us, you know, it's an interesting question to ask, they teach us so many different things, you know, which one is the, the most fundamental and we can we can latch on to a number of different insights from stoicism in this regard. But but one of them is simply to look at situations like that as a, as we say today actually as an opportunity rather than a threat. Right. So someone rather than thinking, God, this you know, you go on Facebook is just full of, you know, horrible, obnoxious people sometimes, you know, if you're a stoic, you might think, Well, you know, this is a training ground, it's a gymnasium for the sure. mind. It's you know, like within reasonable bounds, like, you know, yeah, of course, like Marcus says in that passage we were talking about, preparing himself to meet those people, um, but he's not bitter about it. And in a way, he actually sees it as an opportunity to strengthen his virtue, like, to develop strength of character. And uh, one of the recurring things, that, well, the strategies that he uses, one of the recurring questions, actually, that he asks himself, and he, he gets this from Epictetus, but Marcus repeatedly in the meditations, when he's faced with a problem situation, will we'll ask himself, what virtue has nature given me in order to cope with this? And he's basically doing the same thing. He's treating it as an opportunity and thinking, what sort of exercise is this? You know, does it call for patience? Does it call for empathy? Mm-hmm. And does it call for restraint? Rather than thinking, oh, no, not this again. He's thinking, oh, like, what, what sort of a workout am I getting here? Right. And there are many Stokes who talk about, well, we should desire that challenge, that if we were to, say, go into a wrestling match with someone who wouldn't present any sort of challenge, that wouldn't be good for us. But we want some sort of challenge that we can benefit from as, yes, life will be full of risks, there'll be some downsides, but in many areas, we'll recognize that the benefits outweigh the risks. So we'll engage in this online communication, we'll deal with others and be very careful with the battles that we do choose, this prudence that's mentioned in Stoicism. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's potentially something that we could, you know, completely flip around and, and look at in a much more positive light as, a, as an opportunity. And just doing that, I think, just kind of reframing it in that way, I, I think can be, can be quite fundamental and quite a pervasive difference to the way that you, we respond to things. And as moderator, for example, you know, sometimes I'll see someone's flagged up a, a comment from someone that I know has been a nuisance in the past and mm-hmm. you know my, my initial reaction might be a little bit of like you know my, my heart sinking thinking oh god what have I got to read now from this, <laughs> this guy again Why, what's he done now you know and then I'll kind of stop and I'll check myself and think I should look at it as an exercise you know I should view it in a more positive light like, I don't know what the guy's written like but it's a good opportunity for me to learn to respond to whatever it is you know, see it really as a form of exercise. Or Marcus also uses this medical metaphor. He says, imagine that these are like prescriptions from a physician and that the universe is prescribing as kind of better medicine, but mm-hmm. if we learn to take it in the right way, like as a philosopher, like if we respond to it wisely, then it's actually potentially making us healthier. Like, uh, you know, the the universe for Stoics, in a sense, is prescribing us psychotherapeutic remedies all the time. If only we know how to respond to them appropriately, they can right. help us develop psychological resilience. There's also this crazy passage in Seneca. He's talking about lectures he went to from one of his kind of slightly obscure teachers. But he talks about one of them. Uh, he, say, he said that he attended... Uh, the lectures of a teacher and he was so into this idea that he said when you left you just felt like saying to yourself bring it on right, you know, right he was right. kind of he was yeah. i was wishing for misfortunes to befall me uh-huh, uh-huh. you know I, I was enthusiastic about it after listening to this guy kind of exhorting me to do philosophy and you know, he goes, yeah, you didn't walk out feeling indifferent. You felt as if you really wanted adversity to come and like, try and challenge you. Here it is. I think it's uh, letter 64 in his moral letters to Lucilius on the philosopher's task. He is alive. He is strong. He is free. He is more than a man. He fills me with a mighty confidence before I close his book. I shall acknowledge to you the state of mind I am in when I read his works. I want to challenge every hazard. I want to cry. Why keep me waiting, fortune? Enter the list. Behold, I am ready for you. 
that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't a stoic per se. He he taught an eclectic philosophy that was a, a mixture of uh, stoicism and Pythagoreanism. Mm-hmm. Good. That's the one. I was curious as to which letter okay. that was. Say, oh yeah, that seemed familiar. That's right. No, that's all I can think of to say really. Um, okay. I'd yep. encourage people to you know go and join these communities and they and help them to develop into real communities uh, online. I mean, rather than just groups. You know, there's a lot of value. There's a lot more value I think that we could obtain. I I I still see a, a lot more potential that people who are interested in stoicism could obtain from these groups. And uh, we, like I say, we do all these things with modern stoicism. So increasingly over time, I think there'll be more and more of a coordination between different events and groups and resources. All right. Very good. And can you give some resources for listeners? We've talked about the group. You've mentioned modern stoicism. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah. Modern stoicism was set up in 2012, actually not long around about the same time as that group started. And it was founded by Professor Christopher Gill, who's, who was Professor of Ancient Thought. Uh, he's now kind of retired from that post at uh, Exeter uh, University in England. And Chris has written about Stoicism, and particularly he'd, he'd written about Galen, who was uh, Marcus Aurelius's physician and he had some of his uh, students doing a, a thing called live like galen so trying to live in a, a healthy way following just basic advice about sleep and lifestyle and diet and so on and they kind of thought well what if we lived like marcus aurelius for a week and i i've been writing and delivering workshops and stuff about stoicism for a while and i had a recording of an exercise called the view from above that was online so Pasha Kashar, who is one of his PhD students, got a hold of that and played it to the group. And they thought, well, maybe we can do this. And so Chris organized a meeting and invited a bunch of psychologists, classicists, therapists, and philosophers to it. I think there were about eight or 10 of us at the original workshop that we had in Exeter. And we designed Stoic Week off the back of that as an online international event. And the first year we ran, I think we had 700 people. And then last year there were 7,000. So it's cr- it literally uh, increased almost exactly 10 times in size in the space of the, the five or six years that we've been doing it. And it got a lot of media, a lot of media attention, particularly at the beginning. We were in all of the British broadsheet newspapers and BBC oh, radio and, you know, and a lot of magazines and Forbes magazine and um, I've been in the, I was in the Toronto Globe and Mail a while back being interviewed about it. I did a couple of things for BBC Radio last year, end of last year. And then we developed Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training. So we still do Stoic Week every year as a free online course that people can take part in. And it lasts seven days and each day is a, you follow an online handbook and listen to audio recordings. You try out different Stoic concepts and exercises each day and we gather data on that. But we also have a much bigger protocol. We have a four-week course called SMRT, or Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training. And we designed that specifically so that it would be more suitable to carrying out controlled uh, outcome studies. We modeled it on research in positive psychology and resilience building and CBT. SMRT is kind of more focused on specific aspects of stoicism, sort of core skills. It's much more of a, a skills training protocol. We can see that there are significant changes and we use established, validated measures of life acceptance, positive and negative emotion to measure the outcome. And those are the same questionnaires that are used in CBT research, positive psychology research, so that we can compare our findings to mainstream psychology research. And so we found that there are improvements in in the four-week protocol that were about twice as big as they were in Stoic Week. Uh, We can look at the the areas that people are most likely to see improvements. Tim's published a lot of data on that. We also have Stoicon, which is the annual conference. I organised that last year in Toronto. We do it in a different city every year, a different country. Uh, This year it's back in London again in the UK in John Sellers. 
who's uh, a, a lecturer in philosophies and not he's written several books on stoicism he's going to be organizing it in london this year the end of september and i'll be nice. speaking at that I mean, i've spoken at it every year since we started doing it <laughs> sort of running out of things to speak about it. so we're doing, we're doing that again and then that grew so big we had 400 people at it last year it's got bigger every year that we we started having little spin-off events that we call stoicon x and so we had stoicon x in toronto last year but uh, we've had stoicon x like in all over the world in brisbane and australia and bogota they pop up all over the place and pe people can do those and it's an opportunity for people to get up and give talks uh, what we call lightning talks maybe just five minute talks about stoicism if they haven't done much public speaking before right and um, so we do that and then we the greg sadler does the blog called stoicism today on the modern stoicism website mm -hmm. and that has over 500 articles on it in it from uh, anybody can contribute an article so they are from all sorts of different people some of them are well-known academics uh, and some of them are you know people that work in the prison service like you know lawyers doctors and um, people that have coped with severe illness in their lives or other adversity, you know, so they've got a really diverse range of people approaching stoicism from different perspectives, all contributing articles to that. And then they also, there are a couple of books that Patrick Usher published, which are selections of articles. So they're called Stoicism Today, Selected Writings, Volumes 1 and 2 which mm -hmm. you, you can obtain online. And Modern Stoicism, I should mention, has now has a Patreon page. So for a long time, people were asking how they could sponsor us because we don't have any ongoing sources of funding. We have had little bits of funding in the past for some of the projects, but we don't have anything that right. uh, provides ongoing funding, which there's an increased need for, obviously, because we're getting bigger and bigger, so the expenses increase. We now have a Patreon page that people can go to if they want to kind of become a, a patron or a sponsor of Modern Stoicism. And Modern Stoicism is a limited company in the UK. It's a non-profit organisation. It's run by volunteers. And the team consists of some of the people I've already mentioned. There have been several people over the years that come and go in the team. Some of them are in include well-known authors in the field of Stoicism, like Chris Gill, John Sellers, William Irvin, Jules Evans on the team, Massimo's on the team, Massimo Pellucci's on the team. Mm -hmm. um, you Some know, past podcast guests there, including yeah. Greg Sadler. Yeah. Yeah, oh, Greg Sadler. That's what modern stoicism it does. It does quite a lot of different things, really. And if people haven't kind of come across it, if they're interested in stoicism, I would definitely say go and have a look at the website. It's just modernstoicism.com, and you'll find information about all of the different stuff that they do there. And it's all well, the conference is a fee to go to, but the, you know most of what we do is completely free of charge. That's great. And your website is at donaldrobertson.name yeah. where people can reach you. You're also on Facebook, Twitter, other social media. Everything. If, they, if, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, if they just go to that website, donaldrobertson.name, then they can access uh, everything through that. I have a lot of free e-learning courses on there as well. Uh, people can check out and blog articles and stuff. Yeah. Right. The crash course in stoicism I see here as an entry point for people new or looking to learn more about stoicism. Yeah, there's that. There's a bunch of other things as well. But the, the I think about 4,000 people have done that one now because I designed it. It only takes about five or ten minutes to complete. And there's a video and a reading list. So I specifically created that for people who kept saying to me, I'm interested in stoicism. Can you just explain the basics of it to me quickly and tell me some of the main books that I should read? So I tend to cram a lot of resources in there. There's a kind of list of common popular quotations from stoic authors as well and stuff like that so that's a good starting place for people that want to learn more all right very good any other closing thoughts well i, I should probably plug my book i'll just mention that i've i've just written a book called how to think like a roman emperor which is published by Macmillan, and it's coming out in january next year but it's, it's already listed on Amazon for pre-order if people are interested. I kind of feel strangely, I was saying this today, I normally don't like plugging my own stuff, but I'm quite 
I'm quite uh, happy to promote this book because I feel that in doing so, so I'm really, I'm really just introducing people more to the meditations and Marcus Aurelius. When I wrote it, my idea was to give people a, a greater depth of, of knowledge concerning Marcus's life and the context in which the meditations were written, how they relate to uh, Stoic philosophy in general, uh, so that people would kind of be able to get more out of reading the meditations. And so that, that's what I've tried to do in that book. It's a combination of uh, history, uh, philosophy, and, and bits of modern psychology as well, like talking about how we can actually apply stoicism to deal with everyday problems. So that's the most recent thing that I've written, people are interested. Also, uh, I have a course running at the moment about Socrates lo and loads more stuff. There's so much stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I won't mention any more, but like there are, there are so many things that we've been working on, myself and my colleagues things happening all the time so it, it's an odd thing about stoicism it really it does feel that over the past few years it's just kind of exploded and we keep thinking we keep saying that we keep thinking we'll have we reached peak stoic yet you know is it going to kind of plateau but so i mean for example every year the conference gets bigger like every year more people so far it hasn't plateaued off yet it just seems to get bigger and bigger but what i like to remind people of is although the, like you said as you said at the beginning there are 40,000 people in that Facebook group, right? It seems like quite a lot of people. How many people on Facebook say that Marcus Aurelius is one of their favorite authors? Yeah, it's a good question. Although I think that he's one of the more popular names within yeah. Stoicism. And well, people who don't know much about Stoic philosophy per se, but otherwise enjoy his writing. They have read Marcus Aurelius, so they've had some exposure to Stoicism. I can give you a number. There are one and a half million people wow. on Facebook who list Marcus Aurelius as one of their favorite authors. So, you know, I keep saying that to people when we're talking about this aspect of it, the growth of Stoicism. Uh, just as you've put it, actually, there are many people out there that have read meditations and don't even realize that there's more to Stoicism. But in a way, that's a kind of untapped market for, mm -hmm. you know, for Stoicism, as it were. It's like there's a lot of people on the periphery, but they have read Marcus Aurelius and liked it. And, you know, so I think it, that's one reason why we can be optimistic that stoicism and the, the community that's evolving around that has a lot of potential to keep growing good so a lot of hope as more people join the group more people find out about stoicism improve their lives and improve the world yeah we can always do with more so every time i switch on the news i kind of think like we could do with more stoicism which there's an interesting actually maybe this is a good note to to kind of wind things up on it comes a bit out of uh, a tangent but you've just made me think of it we talked earlier about the different groups of people and there was one i forgot to mention we talked about the military and so on there are a bunch of republican politicians at the moment who are particularly getting interested in stoicism there was a reading group in congress if i remember rightly that were i think they were reading the daily stoic or like one of our holidays books there was a book that came out recently by an american politician about stoicism was stoicism in the state house well, I know that there was Marco Rubio had uh, a tweet here. I'm looking at it now. I made fun of philosophy three years ago, but then I was challenged to study it. So I started reading the Stoics. I've changed my view on philosophy. That was a big That was a big thing in the news, that U.S. Senator from Florida, Marco Rubio. And General Mattis is supposedly into Marcus Aurelius. This guy, Pat McGeehan, just brought out a, a book on uh, called Stoicism in the Statehouse last year. And so there's a growing interest among politicians in America in particular, really interestingly among the Republicans. I feel that in part they're drawn towards virtue ethics because mm -hmm. I think there's a feeling among many traditional Republicans that they've kind of lost touch with something that their party has been, they feel kind of alienated from the direction in which the Republican Party has been taken recently. There's a craving to try and kind of recapture something like a, a virtue ethic that they can relate to their, their political values. Another area where I think we could do with more stoicism would be, you know, maybe a, a return to virtue ethics in politics. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, looking back at the foundation, how do we want to live our lives? And I think many people come to Stoicism on that, especially falling away from religion, falling away from political parties, and really questioning the structures that they've held so valuable, but have come to find issue with. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, the, uh, there's another American politician, which many people will be familiar with, is James Stockdale, vice presidential candidate. And, you know, he's one of the, the most popular authors that people tend to to read when they first become interested in stoicism. Right. Massimo had mentioned him in his book, How to Be a Stoic. And that's been available for, you know, obviously for a long time now as well. So I, I a lot of the people that I meet that are interested in stoicism, that's one of the books that got them into it. All right. Very good. That's that's about all I have today. So thank you for your time. No problem. Thanks very much for having me along. I hope people enjoy the, the podcast. Good luck with it in the future. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. Audio edits are brought to you by John Bartman. Have a great day.